0: When I'm looking for a story to cover on the podcast, I prefer covering cases that are 15 or 20 years old, if not older. Give me a murder or disappearance where I can take a nice long look at all the players and what they've been up to over the years, and I'm a happy girl. This case, this case is different. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One, it's less than 10 years old. Two, it's resolved. We have the who, what, When, where, why, and how. But what we don't have is a body. The remains of 15-year-old Carly Jade Morse were never recovered. She left the apartment she shared with her mother, went for a late-night ride with two people she thought of as friends, and to quote the police report, "'I've been unable to find one shred of information,' One piece of evidence, one statement made, or one witness that could even remotely suggest that Carly Morris is still alive. I have not been contacted by anyone regarding the sighting, possible sighting, or rumored sighting of Carly Morse. It is as if she has disappeared off the face of the earth. Our story begins in Westland a Detroit suburb in Wayne County, Westland is located, not surprisingly, west of the city of Detroit. And while early settlers came to the area inhabited by Potawatomi Indians in the 1820s, the city really began to develop in the years after World War II, when subdivisions were created providing homes for the employees at nearby factories in Wayne, Dearborn, and Detroit. Originally known as Nankin Township, After Westland Mall opened in 1965, joining Eastland and Northland Malls, residents of the township voted in May of 1966 to form a city under the name Westland. Today, the city of Westland is middle class, with a population of approximately 84,000 people. The city is known for its shopping and a variety of public parks. It's a nice place to raise a family. Come with me to a warm summer night in August when a teenage girl, just weeks away from starting high school, rode off in the early hours of Friday morning, never to be seen again. In the summer of 2010, Carly Morse was 15 years old, a petite girl, standing about five feet tall, weighing less than a 100 pounds. She was weeks away from starting school. In September, she would be a freshman at John Glenn High School in her hometown of Westland. It was just after midnight on Friday, August 20th, when Carly told her mom that she couldn't sleep so she was stepping outside for some fresh air. This is the last time her mother, Lori, will see Carly. When Lori wakes up around 2 a.m., Carly has not returned. It will be Friday evening when Laurie Morse enters the Westland Police Department to file a report about her missing child. Lori spent much of Friday calling around to see where her daughter could be. No one has seen or heard from her. Lori is worried. Carly hasn't run away before, and her friends don't know where she is. Westland Police take a report from Carly Morse and enter Carly's information into the Law Enforcement Information Network. They advise her to contact them if she hears from Carly or has more information on where her daughter could be. Carly's mother follows up with Westland police on an almost daily basis, hoping they've heard something about her missing child. But August ends and school begins with no sign of her daughter. When police access Carly's phone records, they note that all activity on Carly's phone ends in the early morning hours of Friday, August 20th. While this could mean something ominous, they have no evidence pointing them in one direction or another. Carly Jade Morse is nowhere to be found, and no one has seen her. In the days and weeks after her disappearance, Westland police work with the media, getting stories out on her case in the Westland Observer and on the local Fox affiliate. They reach out to the neighboring cities of Canton and Garden City, where Carly is known to have friends and sometimes hang out. Contact is made with the Wayne County Sheriff's Office, and Westland officers posted Carly's missing persons flyers around the city, particularly in areas where she or her peers might see them. Hines Drive, the road that leisurely makes its way in a mostly southwestern direction from Northville to Dearborn, passing through Westland on its way, is not far from the apartment Carly shared with her mother, and Hines Drive is searched on foot and on horseback. If you're a long-time listener of the show, we've talked about Heinz Drive previously. The two-lane road is surrounded by woods, parks, and wetlands. It's a perfect place to hide out or hang out. Or if you've harmed someone, it's a pretty good place to hide a body. Westland's Officer Bobby, he's responsible for Carly's case, and he visited Heinz Park on his days off, combing the area for any sign of the missing girl. With permission from Lori Morse, police do a thorough search of Carly's bedroom and find Carly's diaries. Reading through them, they learn of a girl who is struggling, who is unhappy. Carly wants different clothes and different friends and for things to change. From the information that I had access to, it's hard to know how different her diary entries were from those of other 15-year-old girls who are trying to find their way in the world. Especially when facing the new challenge of high school. Police find drug paraphernalia in Carly's room, including pipes, blunt wrappers, baggies, and a small clear bag with a black substance inside. One of the officers thought that baggie could have contained hash. The most startling discovery was that of a ledger outlining various amounts of marijuana how much she'd paid for it, how much she sold, and the money she received or that was owed to her. Based on what was found in her bedroom, Carly Morse, who turned 15 three months before she disappeared, is dealing drugs. Officers spoke with several of Carly's friends and boys she knew or had dated. When they tried to reach one of these boys, Justin Yoshikawa, officers learned he'd moved out of state in late August. Two months after Carly walked out of her mother's apartment, Officer Bobby receives a call from Justin Yoshikawa the young man he'd hoped to speak with early in the investigation, as Justin and Carly used to date. Nineteen-year-old Justin is back in Michigan and learned that the police were looking for Carly. Justin told the officer that he had no contact with Carly since she went missing. Justin revealed that Carly was a major drug dealer, and sometimes she dealt with pounds of marijuana. Justin reached out to Westland police because he had an outstanding drug warrant in Westland. He was hopeful that if he helped with the investigation, maybe the police could speak to the judge on his behalf. During the conversation, Yoshikawa presented himself as very helpful. He promised to get the names of people Carly may have been in contact with for the drug trade. Now, listeners, remember Justin's name because we'll be talking about him later. In late November, just before Thanksgiving, the Federal Bureau of Investigation contacts Westland police. Carly's mother, Lori, upset that her child is still missing, fears Westland isn't working Carly's case, that they aren't taking her disappearance seriously, especially in light of what was found in Carly's bedroom, that because Carly was involved in drugs, they wouldn't give her the same attention that a different missing teenager would receive. Nothing could be further from the truth. We know that Westland worked her case and followed up tips and leads. Wanting to reassure the agent and Carly's mother, Westland police outline the work that they've done. Carly's case has not been forgotten, and they work on new leads as they come in. What officers really needed was time. They don't realize that this case will hinge on the testimony of a teenage girl, someone who hardly knew Carly, but learned enough about her— and the circumstances of her disappearance, to seek the help of responsible adults. This girl, we'll call her Penny, and her mother, whom we will refer to as Denise, these two break the case wide open. Denise is concerned about how her teenage daughter is handling life. Penny was facing unique stressors, and Denise wanted to make sure her daughter was well-equipped to handle them. Denise made arrangements for Penny to see a therapist who would help her daughter navigate her feelings and process the world around her in a healthy way. Listeners, I'm a believer in therapy for people who need emotional support and guidance, and I applaud Denise for supporting her child in this manner. So each week, Penny's mother takes her to a therapy appointment. And one day, Penny turns to her mother and says, If I tell my therapist something really serious, will she have to tell the police? Denise is concerned and curious. What did her daughter know that could require intervention from law enforcement? That's when the story starts to come out. That Penny saw something on the news. A candlelight vigil for a missing girl. Carly Morse of Westland. Penny's boyfriend, 22-year-old Nick Cottrell, he'd spoken of Carly. How Nick and his friend Justin and Carly, they sold drugs together, and Carly kept the money, so Nick and Justin got rid of her. Penny thought this was just a story, just a lot of talk, but then she learned that the missing girl, that she was real. Penny was upset by this and looked to her mother for guidance. Penny told her mom that in September, not long after Carly vanished, Nick and Justin took off for a few weeks, Heading down south. Nick and Justin didn't tell anyone they were leaving. They just up and went to Alabama to stay with Justin's family. Nick will return to Michigan without Justin, and Nick tells Penny more and more about Justin's old girlfriend that Justin killed her because she was stealing money from their drug dealing operation. Penny asks Nick, What was the girl's name? And he told her it was Carly and that she lived in an apartment near Warren and Vinoy Roads in Westland. Penny told Nick that this information, this stuff about the dead girl, it's upsetting, and she might talk with her therapist about it. Penny needed help to process what she'd heard. It was too much to handle on her own. Nick didn't want Penny to do this, and he begged her not to say anything to anyone about what he'd told her, that Penny could talk to him, or Penny should just keep it to herself. Listening to this story from her daughter, Denise is very concerned, and Denise did the right thing. She went to her local police department and told them the story, everything her daughter told her. The officer listened to what Denise said, a missing girl, a drug deal, a murder. A call was placed to the Westland Police Department advising them of Denise's story. Did it fit a case they were working? Yes, Westland did have a case like that, a missing teenage girl, and the names Nick and Justin were familiar to investigators. A meeting is arranged. Westland police need to speak to Penny. They need to get the story from her. So Denise picks up her daughter, and they go to Westland Police Department, where Penny and her mother sit down with Sergeant Serrano. Officer Bobby, who's worked the case up until this point, he's out of the office this week on jury duty, So while he'd been working the case all along, it's Sergeant Serrano that handles this interview. Sergeant Serrano is joined by Sergeant Adams, and they sit down with Penny and Denise to hear the whole story. As Penny spoke, they hear details of Carly's disappearance that were never made public. Penny told the police and her mother that Nick didn't want to participate in the murder, but Justin insisted, saying that if Nick didn't help him, Justin might pay Penny a visit. When they asked Penny when she first heard Nick speak of the murder, she said it was late August, but before Nick's birthday, which was on September 2nd. Remember, Carly Morris disappeared in the early hours of August 20th. Penny tells police that Nick is a habitual liar, and she didn't believe him at first. She thought this was another of his crazy stories, or that he was exaggerating. She didn't want to believe that her boyfriend could be involved in a murder, but now... Knowing what she did, she thought Nick was telling the truth. So they ask Penny if Nick and Justin left Michigan in September because of the murder, and Penny says yes, she thought they did. Penny said no one knew they were leaving except for Nick's mother. And listeners, let me tell you, Nick's mother, Tina Lowe, is a real piece of work. We're going to get back to her in a minute. Sergeant Serrano asks Penny to tell him everything Nick said to her about the night Carly was murdered. She said she didn't know Justin very well. She met him for the first time at the beginning of August, but she knew that Justin told Nick to clean out his car. Nick's Ford Escort had big speakers in the back seat, and he told Nick to take them out. Then Justin and Nick fill the back seat of the car with boxes and dirty clothes, creating a place for Justin to hide. Then Justin gave Nick a CD for the car stereo. He told Nick that when a certain song came on that he, Justin, would strangle Carly. Then Justin instructed Nick to call Carly and see if she, quote, wanted to smoke a blunt. When Nick called her, Carly agreed, and he headed to her apartment. He'd been there before. He'd taken Justin to see Carly on many occasions. When Nick pulled up outside the building just after midnight on August 20th, Carly came outside and got in the car. She didn't know that Justin was hiding under the clothing piled in the back seat. Nick drove them to a nearby park, and he and Carly got out of the car. They sat at one of the picnic tables and smoked some pot. Then they returned to the car, and that's when Justin popped out, wrapping a dog leash around Carly's neck and strangling her. Carly fought back, struggling for breath. Justin yelled at Nick to hold her legs, and Nick did. Nick told Penny that Carly looked at him as if to say, Why? Please, help me. And Carly was screaming and struggling to break free. Penny told him she didn't want to hear any more about it, and Nick stopped talking. When Serrano asks her what happened next, Penny tells them that when Carly stopped struggling, Nick drove off, driving aimlessly around with Carly's body in the front passenger seat. Justin wanted to make sure that she was really dead. They then asked Penny if Nick said what Carly was wearing that night, and she said Nick told her Carly was barefoot and wearing a pair of shorts. Then the questions turned to Carly's remains. How did Nick and Justin get rid of her body? According to what Nick told her, once Carly was dead, they drove to a park, dug a hole, and buried her in it. Another time, Nick told her a different story— that they'd stuffed Carly's body in a bag and dropped her in the landfill. The third version of the story was far more gruesome, that Nick and Justin took Carly's body back to Nick's house because there were power tools there. Justin went into the garage and dismembered Carly's body, wrapping the pieces in black trash bags. Meanwhile, as Penny is being interviewed and telling Westland police what she knows, her phone is blowing up with messages from Nick. When they ask her about the messages, Penny says Nick knew she was considering going to the police, and Nick wanted her to tell him when she was going so that he could go with her. But Penny didn't believe him. She thought that Nick wanted to know if she went to the police so that he could get out of town. Penny had a message she wanted the police to hear. She opened her voicemail and played the message she'd saved from Nick's mother, Tina Lowe. I mentioned that Nick's mother is a real piece of work. Well, here you go. I'm not going to read you the entire transcript of her message, just part of what Tina said to Penny. If you turn him in, you are turning yourself in. Just remember that, because you helped him. They're going to consider you an accessory because you know too much. Just remember that. Listeners, I'm no legal expert. But it sounds like Tina Lowe is trying to intimidate Penny to keep her from saying anything about the murder. Lowe is desperate to protect her son. Sergeant Serrano told Penny that it sounds like Nick's mother knows about the murder. Penny nodded. She was there when Nick told his mother, quote, I did something really bad, and someone's dead because of it. Penny witnessed this exchange between mother and son, but she's not certain what else Nick revealed to Tina Lowe. Then they asked Penny the reason for the murder. Was it because of drugs? Penny said she didn't think so. Justin and Carly had a long history. The two had dated earlier in the year, maybe in May. They had a physical altercation where Carly hit Justin in the face. She'd, quote, pounded his face in. Justin's face was bruised and scratched. He'd worn sunglasses at his high school graduation to hide the bruises, and he was still angry about it. Penny reveals that Carly and Justin had an unhealthy relationship, that Carly would call Justin and tell him she was going to commit suicide. Justin rolled his eyes and said that whenever Carly was, quote, on something, she would talk about hurting herself. One time when this happened, Nick and Justin made Penny call Carly to see if she was really going to hurt herself. Carly told Penny that she was just playing around. She wasn't going to do anything. When Nick and Justin left for Down South back in September, the only person Nick told was his mother. Tina Lowe recently bought a house for her son, and since he was leaving town, he wouldn't be able to move in. No one else knew that Nick and Justin were leaving. The pair originally planned to go to Florida, but those plans fell through, so they went to Alabama to stay with Justin's mom and her family. While the two men were in Alabama, Justin had some sort of, quote, mental breakdown, and checked himself into a psych hospital for two weeks. When Justin was in the hospital, Nick decided it was time to return to Michigan. He asked Penny to send him some money so he could make the drive back. Police circle back and try and pin down when it was Penny knew that it was Carly who was murdered. Penny told them Nick spoke of the murder in August, and again in late September, but it wasn't until December third, two 2010 when Justin's girlfriend, we'll call her Misty, called Penny to say that she'd come across a Facebook page for a missing girl. Penny looked at the Facebook page. She put the girl's name and the location of her apartment off Warren Road and Vinoy together, and she realized this was the girl they'd killed. Penny told police that Misty and Justin are still dating, and if they're looking for Justin, sometimes he stays over at Misty's house in Canton. When police asked Penny if she knew that Carly, Nick, and Justin are selling drugs, she said she did know that. Nick told Penny that he asked his mother, Tina Lowe, for money so he could start his drug dealing business and get on with his life. Tina gave him $500. The way that Penny understood it, Nick gave Carly the money and she used the money to get drugs from her dealers in Detroit. Remember, this is 2010. Medical marijuana is not a thing in Michigan. If you wanted marijuana, it was illegal, and you had to find someone who would sell it to you. Carly spends $500 to buy marijuana. She and Nick divide the drugs, and each sells off what they have. Carly sold her portion for about $1,000, and according to Nick, she didn't share the profits with him. This makes Nick angry, and he tells Justin what happened. Justin says to Nick, Don't worry, I will take care of it. I'll get you your money back. Penny tells police that she's in a relationship with Nick and she's afraid of Nick, that he's been violent with her previously, slapping her and strangling her. She even filed a police report but was afraid of him so she didn't follow through on the prosecution. Before concluding the interview, they ask Penny, does she know what happened to Carly's phone? Penny tells them that Nick said he and Justin destroyed the phone after they killed her. The interview of Penny and her mother started around 6.30 p.m. on Friday night and lasts for a few hours. When the interview ends, there's more work to be done. It's time to take Justin Yoshikawa and Nick Cottrell into custody for the murder of Carly Morse. When police arrive at Misty's house in Canton, they're hoping to find Justin. The detective from Westland is accompanied by an officer from Canton as they knock on the door. Misty answers and they ask if Justin is there. She says that he is, and she lets them into the house. They find Justin sitting on the sofa. They tell him that he's under arrest and ask him to stand up. Justin stands, and as the cuffs snap closed over his wrists, his eyes roll up and he faints. The two officers catch him. Then Justin says, no, no, I'm fine, I'm okay. And the officers begin leading him toward the door. Misty calls to him, Justin, what's going on? Why are they arresting you? And Justin faints again. And again, if the officers weren't there to catch him, he would have hit the floor. Outside, by the squad car, they read Justin Yoshikawa his rights, load him into the back of a police car, and take him to the Westland Police Department for processing. Once in custody, Yoshikawa agrees to talk, and he tells them a story about how 15-year-old Carly Morse had done him wrong, that she'd been in a romantic relationship with him, but they argued about cheating, and she hit him, giving him a black eye. At the point of this argument, he is a senior in high school, just days from graduation, and she's an eighth grader at the junior high school. A couple of months after their bad breakup, the three of them, Morse, Nick Cottrell, and Yoshikawa, decide to get their marijuana sales operation up and running But Carly cheated Nick out of money, leaving both Yoshikawa and Cattrall angry at Morris. That's when the two men decided they would kill her. When they ask him where they disposed of Carly's remains, Yoshikawa tells them they drove to Cattrall's house and put the car in the garage so they could move her body from the front seat to the trunk without it being seen. Then on Friday morning, they put her in a black trash bag and drove around for an hour or two looking for a good place to leave her body. When they were in a remote area, they came across a church and pulled in, dropping her body, which was in a black plastic trash bag, into the dumpster. Yoshikawa couldn't remember where this church was, nor could he recall the name of the church. Yoshikawa agrees to sign a written statement as to what he'd told police about the incident. The next day, less than 24 hours after Penny and her mother sat down with law enforcement to share her long, strange story about the murder of Carly Morse, Nick Cattrall is tracked to Taylor, a city neighboring Westland. He is pulled over and taken into custody during a traffic stop. This was not Catrell's first rodeo. He had several previous convictions, including convictions for home invasion and the manufacture and distribution of methamphetamines and marijuana. Then, police proceed to Nick Catrell's home, the place he went with Justin Yoshikawa the night Carly Morse disappeared. Even though almost four months have passed, they collect evidence from the garage, including pruning shears that had what looked like hair stuck in them, long strands of hair from an orange bucket in the corner of the garage, and from inside the house, they take Nick's laptop, two of his cell phones, and a third cell phone that was broken. They pick up some receipts for gas and cell phone bills, and a state of Alabama food assistance application, which was partially completed. It seems that while Nick was in Alabama, he wanted to apply for food assistance. Police also impound Nick's car, the 1998 Ford Escort, looking for evidence. When Cottrell is interviewed, he tells police that yes, he and Justin had talked about killing Carly. Justin was angry with her for giving him a black eye just before graduation, and Nick is terribly afraid of Justin. Justin threatened to harm Penny, Nick's girlfriend, if Nick said anything about what Justin did to Carly. Justin told Nick that he was watching Penny's house and would hurt her if Nick said anything. Nick tells police he's afraid Yoshikawa will kill him or kill his girlfriend if he doesn't go along with the murder. And again, after the murder, it was his fear of Justin that made him stay silent. Police inform Nick that Justin is in custody and won't be hurting anyone. This makes him more willing to talk. Nick tells them a story very close to what Penny told police the day before, that Justin hid in the back seat of Nick's car and strangled Carly Morris using a dog leash left by one of his roommates. The story changed from Penny's version and Justin's version when it came to how they got rid of Carly's body. Cottrell said they drove back to Nick's house in Taylor, put the car in the garage, then Justin went to work on Carly's body, breaking her joints and folding her already small frame into a black plastic garbage bag with a red drawstring. The two loaded her into the trunk of Nick's car and drove around looking for a place to dump her. They came across a church that was maybe near Monroe, Michigan, which is about 30 miles south of where they lived. Nick said he didn't know which church because they were, quote, driving blindly, and that after they dumped the body, he had to use GPS on his phone to get back home. Nick agreed to take a ride with police and try and find the church where her body was left. Justin will take a similar ride with another officer on another day, but the two are unwilling or unable to lead police to the location where Carly's body was dumped. One of the most frustrating things about this case is that neither Nick or Justin can give police a straight story as to what became of Carly's body. When you hear the conflicting stories each man tells, it's clear they're lying. Neither one of them is willing to tell the truth. While it is possible they were frightened and under the influence when they disposed of her body, it seems unlikely that both of them have forgotten where she is. With Nick and Justin in custody, both having confessed to police their involvement in the murder, what officers really want is to bring Carly home to find her remains so the Morse family can have that bit of closure and lay her to rest. In addition to doing the ride-alongs with officers through areas that could be where Carly was dumped, Nick and Justin are given supervised access to computers, so they can look at aerial views of churches, hoping one of them will be where they'd left Carly's remains. Without narrowing down the location where her body was left, it is impossible to search the landfill for her body. Westland police and the family of Carly Morse still, to this day, hope to find Carly and bring her home for a proper burial. Even though there is no body, no blood evidence of a murder, the prosecutor is confident that they have a strong case against Yoshikawa and Cottrell. In addition to both men signing written confessions and talking with law enforcement about how the murder occurred, there is the testimony of Nick's girlfriend, Penny, and a new witness. We'll call him Larry. Larry told police he'd recently become roommates with Nick. On December 8th, he'd overheard an argument between Nick and Penny. The argument was over Nick's involvement in a murder and whether Penny would talk to someone about it. Nick told Larry he was afraid Penny would go to the police. Nick went so far as to boot up his computer and show Larry news stories online related to Carly Morse's disappearance. Nick also told Larry that Justin was using Penny as leverage. If Nick told anyone what happened, Penny would be harmed. Larry asked Nick where the body was, and Nick responded, Decomposing somewhere. Police have voicemails and text messages from Nick's mother, Tina Lowe. They look at building a case against her, since she clearly had knowledge of the crime. While they are trying to decide how that should be handled, Nick's roommate Larry returns to the station, he has more information for detectives. In addition to his written statement about his interaction with Nick, he'd just had a conversation with Tina Lowe. Tina had called Larry because she'd heard he'd spoken to police. She wanted to know what he said to them. Larry told her that police had a warrant and searched the house. Tina responded, quote, They couldn't have found anything because I cleaned the garage and took everything out. Police asked Larry if Tina said what she meant by everything and Larry told them that she didn't elaborate. Westland police worked hard to locate Carly Morse. They searched from Toledo to Northville and back again, checking dumpsters, cemeteries, Google Maps, and Hines Drive. Her body could not be located. Neither Nick Cottrell or Justin Yoshikawa would give a straight answer as to where they left her remains. The stories shifted and changed, none of the churches, schools, maps, or aerial photos looked familiar enough for either man to say, that's the place. Westland police meet with the owner of a landfill in Flat Rock, Michigan. They are hoping to look for Carly's remains and wonder what that might involve. Police are informed that since a single landfill can receive 250,000 tons of trash each day, it would be necessary to determine where the body was picked up If they were to have any hope of finding her remains, the Center for Missing and Exploited Children is contacted and they confirm what the owner of the landfill told them. Without a specific dumpster to start with, there is no reason to even attempt a search of the landfill. Police use GPS data from Cottrell and Yoshikawa's phones attempting to pin down their movements that night. The area they are left with is massive stretching from Monroe, Michigan, south to Toledo, Ohio, and from U.S. 23, east to Lake Erie. Officers take photos of nearly 100 churches in this area and show them to Cottrell and Yoshikawa, hoping one will be the right place. When officers from other agencies learn of the search for Carly Morse, they offer up suggestions and send photos as well. The hunt for her remains was a group effort. On February 3, 2011, Nick Cottrell struck a plea deal with the prosecutor's office, and he accepted a term of second-degree murder and 25 to 50 years in prison. Part of his plea agreement states that Nick must testify against Justin Yoshikawa during Yoshikawa's trial. Cottrell's plea agreement also requires him to tell the court about his role in the murder, Carly's mother, Lori, and her sister, 23-year-old Lauren, ask Cottrell to tell them where Carly's body is. They beg him to give them an answer, so their daughter and sister can be laid to rest, not left among trash in a landfill somewhere. Cottrell's attorney, Solomon Radner, tells the court that Cottrell has schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and attention deficit disorder, and was, quote, scared to death of Justin Yoshikawa. During Cottrell's sentencing, the judge, Ulysses Boykin, says the term, heinous crime, is overused, but in this case, it fit. And then he hands down the 25- to 50-year sentence for second-degree murder. I imagine that if Cottrell told the court where Carly's remains could be found, his sentence may have been lighter. Cottrell's mother, Tina Lowe, is in court to observe the sentencing of her son, on Tuesday, August 8, 2011, Tina Lowe, the 49-year-old mother of Nick Catrell, faces charges of accessory after the fact to a felony and interfering with a police investigation. Working with her attorney, the prosecutor offers Tina a plea. If she pleads guilty to interfering with a police investigation, they will drop the accessory after the fact charge. Lowe and her attorney agree and Wayne County Circuit Court Judge Ulysses Boykin sentences her to two years' probation and orders her to pay $783 in court costs. With a court date originally scheduled for July and then adjourned until October, plans to try Justin Yoshikawa for the murder of Carly Jade Morse continue. Part of Nick Cottrell's plea deal is that he will testify against his friend in court. On November 17, 2011, Nick announces that he doesn't like his plea deal, and he's not going to testify. He'd spoken with another prisoner incarcerated for a similar crime, and that guy only got 18 years. Catrell said that his deal, quote, wasn't fair, and he wouldn't testify unless they rework his plea and lessen the amount of time he has to spend in prison. Well, the Wayne County prosecutor isn't having it, he tells Catrell that won't happen and advises the judge that Cottrell has backed out of his plea agreement. The trial for Justin Yoshikawa begins on Monday, November 21st, 2011. With Cottrell refusing to testify, his earlier testimony from the plea hearing is read into the record, and the jury listens intently. After consulting with his lawyer, Yoshikawa wants to make a deal. Prosecutors speak first with Carly's mother and sister to advise them that there could be a deal on the table, and by Wednesday, November 23rd, Justin Yoshikawa accepts the plea. 35 to 50 years in prison for the murder of Carly Morse. If he'd taken his chances with a jury, he could have faced life without parole. This case is closed. It's neatly tied up, two confessions, two men in jail. However, there has never been any information as to the location of Carly Jade Morse. She walked out of her apartment on a warm August night, never to be seen again. A jailhouse informant housed with Cottrell said that Nick once asked him, If you dump a body in Ohio, and Ohio has the death penalty, can you get the death penalty too? The informant didn't have an answer for him. And what an interesting question Nick asked. Carly's home in Westland is just 60 miles, or 96 kilometers, from Ohio. It's possible they transported her body out of state for disposal. Nick Cottrell and Justin Yoshikawa are responsible for her death and for concealing her remains. Unless one of them comes forward with information about where her body was left, it seems unlikely that Carly Morse will ever be found. Special thanks to the Westland Police Department for their assistance with this episode. If you have information about the remains of Carly Morse, please contact Westland Police at 734-722-9600. Already Gone is a bi-weekly true crime podcast focused on Michigan and the Great Lakes region. You can check us out on Twitter or join the Already Gone podcast discussion group on Facebook. If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for cases to cover, email me, host at com. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Your reviews help other listeners find the show and the cases discussed here. Already Gone will be back with another no-body murder case from the Detroit area. Until then, I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.